We have Nathan Hollett speaking to us this morning, but I'm going to read uh, the Bible reading first will be from 2 Kings chapter 5, 1 to 19. I would invite you to open up there. He's going to be hanging around in that passage this morning, so it's helpful to have it out in front of you or on your screen, on your phone, if that's what you prefer to use. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 to 19. It's a long one. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your, your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Farfa better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, Go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve... I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. This is a very dramatic reading. 
primary school teacher, dramatic reading, probably a little bit more dramatic than I would have perhaps have offered. So um, there we go. I've called this humility and obedience, the journey to wholeness. Now, I just feel the need to qualify something here because I don't like to make grandiose sweeping statements like humility and obedience, the journey to wholeness. But there is a level at which humility and obedience is part of the journey to wholeness. It is not the entirety of it, and I'm not trying to stand up here and say that. I am trying to illustrate that this is part of it, all right? So don't be like, oh, I tried it and nothing happened. Um, well, there might be other parts for your journey. And I mean that very sincerely. Um, but this is definitely, and we're gonna, I'm going to try and draw this out and show you it in the text, this is definitely part of the journey to wholeness, and I think there's some things we can learn from this. So I really, I really enjoy the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites. Whenever I'm looking for comfort or I'm processing emotions, be them the wonderful bright ones or the very human darker ones, the Psalms helps me. Writing that out, that's where, that's where I go. I go to the Psalms, I start to write them out. And the reason is because the Psalms will not allow you to wallow in, those, in the depths of those dark emotions. They'll meet you there and they'll say, hey, lift your eyes. Look at Jesus. Look at God. Right? So they're great. When, you, when you're feeling that rubbish, just go there. There's so many of them. One of my Bible lecturers wrote a whole, his whole doctorate was on the Psalms of Lament and how that, most of the Psalms are really quite sad. There's a few really bright ones. We all seem to remember those ones. And if you actually read it, there's a lot of sort of depressing ones and smashing babies and all kinds of things. You're laughing, but it's there. So whenever I'm doing that type of stuff, I go to the Old Testament. Or when I'm feeling, you know, you don't want to be this way, but hey, we're being real here. Whenever you're feeling uninspired, whenever the Bible is hard to read, my go-to is the stories. Right? I'll go to like somewhere like Genesis, or I'll go for somewhere in Joshua through to about the end of Second Kings. Chronicles is a repeat of a lot of First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, and there's a lot of genealogies in there. I think it's about the first eleven chapters of genealogies. So that, that's not um, that's not particularly inspiring, but it's there. Um, so I will go to those places and I'll look at them, and because they're they're fascinating, they're true, and they're better than the fantasy novels you can read in the library. Or get from Dimmicks or anywhere else. Right? They're full of war. They're full of espionage, blood, regicide, deception. Do you know what regicide is? I'm looking at this curve here. You know what regicide is? Regicide is the killing of royalty. Oh, big word. Not really, but anyway. So then when I got asked, hey, can you do a talk on uh, Naaman and Elisha? I was like, I can do that. I'm good with this stuff. Let's go. So we're going to talk through this story, and I'm, we're going to do a little bit of DBS at the end, because I think the DBS structure is great. And we're going to talk about the three main questions of DBS, and we're just going to try and see what the Bible says about it. Okay? So because I know these stories really well, the wrestle for me is always not to rush, not to overlook anything, not to assume I know all the answers, not to assume I know all the facts and how the story goes, but to invite the Holy Spirit to release wisdom and revelation. So that's where I'm going to start this morning. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We thank you for your presence that's been here this morning. I'm asking that you would release wisdom and revelation that we would know you. That we would look upon these words and we would see who you are, God. We would see how you're speaking to us and we would see how we can choose to obey. 
Show us new things. Give us fresh eyes. Amen. So some of you are familiar with Naaman's story before Lauren read it this morning. For others of you, not, because it just depends. The Bible is a big book and maybe you haven't got from start to end yet, but that's all right. You'll get there. Keep trying. I want to encourage you when you approach the Bible, you need to look at it with reverence and curiosity when you're studying it. If you find yourself approaching God's word going, I know this, I've read it, that should be a big red flag. Hey, slow down a second. That's not a great attitude to have. If God's word is living and active like it says it is, then it's living and active and I can find something new. I can see a deeper revelation. So anytime you feel that, I want to encourage you to just go, oh, hey, hmm, maybe not. Let's try that again. God help me. All right. And so my children are in primary school and they're learning about investigations and questions. They're learning to ask who and how and what and why and where. And so as we go through this story, as I, I slow down, I, I get out my notebook and I write it. I have my Bible there, I have my notebook there and I start to write out the scripture. And as I do, questions start to come into my mind. Because it, it gives me, the writing it out gives me a chance to slow my brain down enough to actually think a little bit before racing off into the list of the checklist of what I need to do or the tasks that's got to be done. And so I wrote down all the questions. I wrote down all the questions I had as I was reading these 19 verses. That is genuinely all of them. So if you can read that, that's fine. If you can't, that's okay. My point is there's always a question to be asked. There's always something new. Something you can explore. And I'm not so bothered about actually finding the answers to these questions. For some of these things, the questions are in the scripture. They could be in the text further down. I just didn't get to it at that point. They could be a couple of chapters somewhere in the chapters beforehand. They could be somewhere in the chapters after. That's called context. Or you could find it from looking at cultural and historical context. Seeing what... Uh, so Aram is actually the nation of Syria. More or less. It's a little bit nuanced than that, but that's for, for today we'll just go with that. Um, and so you look at ancient Near Eastern traditions and things and you can see, okay, probably this type of stuff was going on. So you can look at, within the scripture, you can look at the, the culture and the history. But there are, there are questions that I have up there that I will never have answers for. I'm okay with that. I'm genuinely, perfectly fine with that. Because the exercise for me is more important. There are questions up there that I'm like, you know what? I will ask Jesus when I get there. Because that would be great. Although there's a very large part of me that suspects when I actually stand before Jesus, it'll be more like, um, what questions? <laughs> uh, you're beautiful. <laughs> a bit more like that, I think. Um, but the process of asking the questions, staring at the text, that's meditation. And in that process, the Bible begins to read you. The words begin to convict you. You start to go, oh, hang on. I can see the parallel here in my own life, perhaps. Well, there's a lesson to be learned here. It reflects back to you and you grow, but only if you're going to slow down enough to let it. So let's have God's word read us this morning. Verse 1. We're going to go through this. I like to do sort of verse by verse. I'm going to put the verses up there. It's, it's fun for me to do this. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army. For the record, I believe it is pronounced Naaman. 
I checked Bible dictionaries and things. You know, they've got the pronunciations. You can press play. Naaman. Thank you. Uh, because through him, the Lord had given Aram great victories. Remember, every time you see Aram, we talk about modern-day Syria, more or less. But, through Naaman, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Okay, so we get two characters introduced here. We've got the king of Aram and Naaman. Now, Naaman is the commander of the king's army. And Aram has been given great victories through the Lord. I think that's interesting. A non-Yahweh-worshipping nation is identified as being given victories through the Lord. So I go, why is that? That's one of my questions if you go back to the page. It's on there. Why is that? I think it's two things. Number one, I think the, the, the Israelite scholar who's writing this book is saying God is the one who's in control. Nothing happens outside of his power and his authority. So number one, God is the one in control. And number two, this is more me, I think. Uh, I, I wonder if Aram has been used as judgment against Israel, much like Nebuchadnezzar does in other times in Assyria, where, where the, there is sin, disobedience, and a foreign power comes in and crushes them, and it's the judgment of God in that moment, that they would come back in repentance to him. Now, fun fact, at the end of First Kings, the king of Israel is Ahab, okay? And he goes to war against Aram, and he brings Jehoshaphat with him, and he goes in disguise, because he's pretty sure Aram's targeting him. And he tells Jehoshaphat, hey, you go out in all of your kingly splendor. I'm going to hide over here. And then Jehoshaphat gets chased by the Aramean soldiers. They're like, there he is, let's get him. And eventually, at some point, Jehoshaphat calls out. Now, I don't know if it was a squeal or something, but there must have been, there was something obvious about his voice. They went, oh, that's the wrong guy. They, they literally just went away from him. Because the king of Ram had said, we need to get the king of Israel, not the king of Judah. So they turn away from him. Now this is the battle where Ahab dies. If you know the story, he's disguised, he's hiding, and a random arrow gets shot, flies through the air, pierces him at a joint between his armor. Like the odds of all of this happening is incredible. Pierces him at a joint between the armor, and he eventually dies from that on the battlefield. It's like, oh, cool. Well, the hero myth is that Naaman was the one who shot the arrow. Again, nice, fun story, fun fact. No way to prove it. It's just interesting to think about. Again, I like to think. It doesn't have to have the answers. It doesn't have to be right. I'm not holding that as truth. I'm just going, that'd be kind of cool if it was. It would also explain how Naaman has been given great victories by the Lord. Because Ahab's death was prophesied by the Lord. So Naaman's this great guy, but he's got a fatal issue. He's got leprosy. Leprosy we often think of as a skin disease. My research this week, and I'm very open to being wrong, there are medicos in this room who can probably answer, my, answer it better than I can, but is not so much a disease of the skin as it is a disease of the nervous system. And so what happens is you get a bit of numbness. You get a bit of... Uh, let me read my notes here, make sure I get this right. It begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Then that pain goes numb. Then that skin changes color. Then it starts to go thick, glossy, scaly. Then it turns into an ulcer. And it begins to weep. And I could go on, but it gets grosser from there. The point is, actually not the point, but it's interesting that leprosy didn't actually kill you. But it never let up till you did die. You may have died incidentally, 
but it's not going to kill you in the way that, say, cancer does. So you could very well live a relatively long life in excruciating pain. Leprous, Naaman's trajectory is bad. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Now, slavery is part of life at this point. All right? And the Israelite girl, taken, kidnapped, sold, done. It's not like the stories where some hero comes and rescues all the slaves. That may have happened, but generally probably not. And in this story, we get two sentences from this girl. We get this. I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. The young girl is kidnapped, sold into slavery, and yet this is her disposition to her slave master. It says a lot. I think it says a lot about her upbringing. How she was taught, how she was trained, perhaps. We don't know how old she was, but how she was trained. But regardless of that, she's come to the place of going, you know what? Yeah, it's rubbish, but I'm going to choose to honor this rub- the, the masters that I have right now. Which is what Paul says in the New Testament. Slaves, honor your masters. So she does, and she wishes the best for Naaman. Which is interesting, because it, it sort of speaks to me that like maybe in Naaman's household maybe himself or his wife, he's actually a kind man, a man of strong character, because she wishes the best for him. Again, don't know. I just like to think. But she pretty much guarantees healing. She's got no business doing that. This little girl, has she met Elisha? Chances are pretty low. Could have happened, but chances are low. And she's like, yeah, oh yeah, he'll heal him. Okay. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit speaking through her. Because uh, Aram and Israel are not really friends. They coexist, but they're not particularly friendly. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram has told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take, the king, to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant, Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. I reckon the king of Aram is feeling pretty excited at this point. There is a chance that my commander, who's this great champion of our nation, who's now been sidelined by leprosy, can come back and be our great commander again. This is fantastic. Let me write you a letter of introduction. We're not even friends with Israel, but I'll write you a letter. Because that carries weight. I don't know. But he sounds keen, doesn't he? And he sends him with gifts. Naaman takes his gifts. I find this fascinating. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. That's a big amount of stuff. Ten. Ten sets of clothing. It's like an afterthought. Or, perhaps, the value of clothing is higher than we give it. Maybe gold is like stones. There we go. But fabric is harder to work with. I don't know. Again, it's just interesting. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. Now, I identify a lot with the king of Israel in this moment. The king of another country sent you a letter with an impossible request, and the king of Israel panics and tears his clothes. He's like, ah, I'm a parent. I have young children. 
I get asked to do impossible things at least three times a week. I have children thrust Lego pieces at me and go, make it bend. (sighs) Or like, I want this piece to go in here. No, no, that's a one stud slot. This is two studs. It doesn't work. But it needs to, and it has to be that exact piece. There's no swapping it around. If you've got children, you know what this is like. No swapping it around. Or like this morning, for example, my children found the stash of COVID tests that we've got from all the Marky Mark's handouts. And um, they're like, cool. They're just like tearing them up. They've got the stuff. Like, this is great. These are going to be our awesome new toys. And uh, my little son, John, walked in holding a little box and a COVID test. And he's like, I want to bring this to church. And I want this to go in here. This has no chance of fitting in there. It is just entirely the wrong size. And the distress that overcomes children when these things are incompatible... And suddenly you are the bad guy. There is nothing you can do to fix this problem. No logic, no amount of explanation. And so like the king of Israel, as a parent, I stand there and go, Am I God that I can do this? (laughs) No, I am not. So when the king of Israel is like, Ah, heal leprosy. I'm going, I get it. And if you're a parent, you'll also be going, Yeah. So the king of Israel's response is totally understandable. He's come to pick a fight. Because again, they're not friends. They're in a bit of a ceasefire at this point in time, but they're not really friends. Then Elisha reaches out to to the king and instructs him to send Naaman to him. My first thought here is, why did Elisha have to reach out to the king? Why is the king's immediate response not, we'll go and get Elisha? And I believe that Elisha's comments here about a true prophet in Israel give us the answer. You see, the king of Israel, who's never actually mentioned by name in this story, he's given a title, but he's never given a name. It's Joram, who's the son of Ahab. You can find that in sec- earlier in Second Kings, Second Kings chapter 3. And if you know anything about Ahab, you'll know that he didn't get along with Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. Ahab turned his back on God and God's voice through his prophets. It's actually what led to Ahab's death. I already mentioned that in 1 Kings 22. So the king of Israel is not in the habit of consulting with God when problems arise. There is something of a generational conditioning going on here. His first port of call is to try and fix it himself. And then possibly, maybe, eventually, when his futility is realized, he goes, oh, the Lord, let's try that. And off he goes, maybe. It's the, pattern of its fa- it's the pattern of his family, and it's probably all he's ever known. So it's all he ever does. Even if he knows better, even if you know better, your default behavior, your learned patterns can be really difficult to change. It reminds me of a story I heard about a woman who was preparing a Christmas turkey for her family. It's obviously a North American story because we don't do this. Certainly not in my house. And she's, gets, she's prepping the turkey, and the last step is that she cuts off half of the turkey legs, the thin end of it, and then sticks it in the oven. And the husband goes, hey, what do you do that for? She goes, um, it's just what mum always did. Well, mum's in, ki- in the living room, let's go and ask her. I go, hey mum, why did you cut the turkey legs in half? She goes, um, 
not sure. Your grandma used to just do it all the time. And grandma's asleep in the recliner. Quick, wake her up. <laughs> grandma! Oh, yeah. Why do you cut the turkey legs in half? She goes, what? Oh. Our oven was pretty small, so we couldn't fit, so we just stuck it in. <laughs> My point is, generational conditioning can blind you to things that make no sense. So Elisha's intervention is to show that there is a true prophet, both to the Aramean commander, Naaman, as well as the king of Israel. So Elisha says, come to my house. So Naaman goes. Now ordinarily, Middle Eastern cultural thing, if you invite someone over, you put on a spread. You put on a big deal, you make it a party, hospitality, big part of their culture. Elisha's having none of that. Doesn't even come to the door. Sends his servant out. You go and talk to him. Servant comes out. Your Naaman? Right. The message is, wash yourself seven times the Jordan River. You'll be good. <laughs> Naaman is furious. He is, the Australian words would be, ropeable. If you're watching on the stream, there you go, language lesson. And I imagine it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that as the commander of the army, I'm sure he was accustomed to a certain level of deference and respect. And here Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. And the second part is this. Naaman makes it clear that what he was expecting was a magic show. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and heal me. He wants a magician to go... And everybody go... Whoa. Then he begins to complain about the conditions of his healing. What about the rivers of my homeland? Aren't they nicer than this? I've forgotten something important. You can't really see it real well because I've covered it with a whole bunch of text, but you've been looking at a picture for a while here on the screen. It is the Jordan River. And um, I cropped it out because I didn't think it would be particularly helpful. But just below the shot here, there's a cow wandering through, which I think adds to the whole like dirtiness of the river that random animals are traipsing through it. So he's like, can't I go back to Syria, back to where I'm comfortable, back to where I know the water is clean and I know where it's come from and where it's going and I don't have to deal with the animals. And he leaves. It's like, I'm done, I'm out of here, goodbye. Think about that for a moment. He's come all the way to Israel, desperate to seek healing for a disease to which there is no cure. It's not fatal, but it's severely debilitating and will destroy his quality of life before he eventually dies of old age or something else, but with huge amounts of pain. This is the trajectory Naaman's on. An offer for healing is made, and his pride rises up and goes, no. That's astounding to me, and yet it is the human condition. So many times we get asked, or God asks us, to do something small, simple, to see that healing. And rather than embrace humility and obedience, we choose pride and disobedience. We go the other way. Fortunately for Naaman, his officers very quickly intervened. They had obviously been with him long enough that they had his respect and they knew how to gently coax, manipulate, manipulate. They almost appealed to his vanity. If it was something big, wouldn't you have done it? I have in my head... David collecting 100, Jewish, uh, 100 Philistine foreskins. That's something big. It's gross, but it's big. 
And if you haven't read that story, it's a real thing. Go and look at it. It's about 1 Samuel 17 or 18, somewhere in there. And uh, like, wouldn't you have done that? And I was like, of course, because it would have added to my grandiose. So when the man of God says, do the little thing, why don't you just do the little thing? Naaman goes, I've had a chance to calm down. I've thought about your words. I agree. Let's go. So they go. Naaman bathed seven times. He experiences healing. His skin returns to this baby skin. Lovely, soft, glistening with youth. One of the things I love here is that Naaman's not an Israelite. He doesn't worship Yahweh. He's got no connections. And yet God, for the sake of his own glory, heals this enemy of Israel. Because no other God does that. No other God moves on behalf of those who are not on his team. And yet our God shows mercy, compassion and kindness to all across the board. That simple act, for me, is profound about the character of God. Anyway, Naaman and his posse return to Elisha's house. They're very excited. On the back of his healing, Naaman makes this declaration, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. Now I love this. A man who 30 minutes ago was raging, has now become a believer and an evangelist for Yahweh. And he does what anyone overflowing with gratefulness does. He offers gifts to the wrong guy. Elisha's response is, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. Now, what would have happened if Elisha had accepted the gifts? What would it say about Elisha as a prophet of the Lord, as a voice to Israel? That God's favor can be bought? What does Elijah's, Elisha's refusal do to Naaman's view of God? Elisha refused to commodify the activity of the Lord. Because if Elisha had taken the gifts to Naaman, it becomes a, uh, um, a transactional relationship. I have paid for what I got. I'm done with you. I'm out. Instead, Elisha says, no. What happened? That's between you and God. All I did was speak. And now Naaman's heart is one. And he gives his life to Yahweh. I love Naaman's response after this. He says, please allow me to load two mules with earth from this place. What does he want dirt for? It's never specified. It's not specifically said. But I think it's implied that Naaman wants to go home and he wants to continue worshipping the Lord God of Israel on Israel. Now, it's just dirt. We go, it's just dirt. But he's going, no, this is my commitment. My life has been changed and transformed, and I want my whole life to reflect that reality. Naaman is thinking through already the implications of going back to a foreign land that knows nothing of Yahweh and going, how am I going to worship and honor this God that I've just encountered? I know, I'll take dirt, I'll build a little thing, and I'll worship on that. But more than that, he's saying, 
will God please forgive me that I have to go into the temple to serve my master and that sometimes I'm going to have to kneel next to him while he worships but know that my heart belongs to Yahweh. There's a lesson right there about submission to authority in a way that honors God. Not my point though. And the story ends with this. Elisha's benediction over, over Naaman. Go in peace. And I read that and I feel like I see a warm smile. Because Elisha's like, you know what? This is a man whose heart has been won by Yahweh. This is great. Yeah, go in peace. Go worship. Go back to your land. We have no more evidence about what Naaman does from the scripture after that. But it seems like it was quite a significant transformation. So let's do a little bit of a discovery Bible study application. The DBS model asks three primary questions when we're looking at a biblical text. Number one, what do we learn about God? Now the obvious answer here is that God heals. He does it in whatever means he wants to do for the sake of his own glory. Done. Another part that I've already alluded to is that God does things in a way that will bring him the most glory in and through an individual. Naaman wasn't an Israelite and had never worshipped the God of Israel, yet God intervened in his life to bring about transformation. The phrase Elisha used was that Naaman would know that there was a true prophet in the land of Israel. I already think that's a statement targeted at Naaman and the king of Israel. I don't think Elisha's tooting his own horn here. It's not about, like, look at me. This is about going, hey, I'm a prophet of God. The things that I say come from God. You know how you know? Because they happen. That was the test. If the prophet said something and it happened, that was the one from God. If he said something that didn't, well, you disregard that one. Naaman's the commander of an army. He probably went with some of his top officials. How many of them in that moment went, whoa, there is a God in the land of Israel? How many of them then went home and went, you know how Naaman was sick? He's not now. You know what happened? There's a God in the land of Israel. For his own glory, he will do whatever he wants. I think that's just fine with me. Like healing a pagan army commander who's an enemy of Israel. Question two, what do we learn about people? Now, I think this is the most interesting question here. There are two people in this story faced with an uncomfortable situation, and they each have a different response. There's Naaman with leprosy, but there's also the king of Israel with the charge to heal Naaman's leprosy. Now, I recently came... It's not my habit to do this, but I recently came across a clip from Joe Rogan. Uh, he, he gets some insightful and intelligent people on at times. And he was talking with a man called Chris Williamson, and they were discussing a thing called the region beta paradox. And the premise is this. Imagine if you live your life by this rule. If I have to travel one kilometer, I'm going to walk. If I have to travel two kilometers, I'm going to take a bike. Two or more. So one or less, I'm going to walk. Two or more, I'm going to ride a bike. The paradox here is, if you just got on the bike in the first place, you'd travel the one kilometer quicker, right? The two kilometers would be done faster than the one kilometer. And the point he's trying to make is, there is a level of discomfort or dysfunction that we as people, humans, are willing to endure. And that's wrong. When it comes to uh, God and his holiness and, and relationships and things, that's wrong. We become stuck in this thing called the chasm of comfortable complacency. Where things are bad, but not bad enough to make a change. If you've ever transitioned to a new workplace, you may have encountered this. 
You, with your fresh eyes, you walk in, you go, why is that being done that way? People go, um, I don't know. Why don't we just fix it? That's a good idea, really. Or it's like you turn up in an office place, and uh, imagine this, the photocopier machine. There it is. It has a tendency to overheat. If it gets used for too long, it overheats and it shuts down for an hour while it cools down. And the office has just sort of gone, eh, I guess we'll just wait. That stop work time, the loss for that stop work time in that office is probably greater in a week than if they just replaced the machine in the first place. So they'd be better off if the machine blew up. So the situation would be worse, so they would replace it. But instead, we live with dysfunction because it's not quite bad enough. That is the region beta paradox. Now, in this story, the king of Israel is stuck in a chasm of comfortable complacency. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. We talked about generational conditioning. His kingdom was at peace, and the king of Aram's letter comes, but that wasn't enough to galvanize him to turn to the Lord, to make the right course of action. The inverse of that is Naaman went, hey, there is hope for me over there, and so he up and he goes and he travels. I'm not clear how far it is, but he travels a reasonable distance. He's like, I am going to go. I'm going to do what needs to be done. Now, the region beta paradox can be applied to all areas of life. Ask yourself this. What level of dysfunction have you just accepted in your life? It might be in your workplace. It might be within your family. It could be within relationships. What have you just accepted and settled for? I haven't spoken to my siblings for weeks, months, years. I'm, not, I'm, I'm grumpy with my spouse, but rather than address it, I'll just passively, aggressively not make them coffee tomorrow and see if they pick up on it. That's the kind, no, you're laughing, but that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. We go, it's bad, but it's not bad enough for me to embrace the uncomfortableness of confrontation and go, hey, I'm not happy. See, I wholeheartedly believe that God wants us to be in whole, healthy, functional relationships with those around us as much as it depends on us. So many of the Old Testament laws were about maintaining healthy relationships so what we learn about people from this story is that we have a willingness to endure a certain level of dysfunction before we become so def desperate that we take action. Even Naaman got right to the door of his healing and then backed off because he was unhappy. Just like, I'm not, mm -mm, not prepared to do that. What can I learn to obey or apply to my life? If we look at Naaman, we see a man who was desperate for healing. He came to the end. He came to the land of his enemies to seek help from their God, but he still wanted it to be done on his terms. He wasn't happy with the way Elisha conducted himself or with the process of healing, and it almost cost him his healing. Yet by eventually, even begrudgingly, choosing obedience, the word of the Lord brought about Naaman's healing had an encounter with the living God that dramatically transformed him. And there's an argument to be made that, within this story at least, the leprosy on the outside is a reflection of the sickness of pride on the inside. 
And what I haven't touched on today, but you can go and read, is the situation gets reversed with Elisha's servant Gehazi immediately after this, where the greed that is eating away Gehazi's heart turns into the leprosy that begins to eat away his body. See, God cares about the deeper issue. Even in Naaman's life, the deeper issue is your pride, not your leprosy. So you need to choose humility and obedience first, and then you'll receive your healing. Let Naaman's officer's words ring in your mind. If the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he simply says, go wash and be cured. So what can I obey? You do not need a prophet to speak the word of the Lord to you. You have it. It's in your phone, it's on your iPad, it's in your hands. You have the word of the Lord, you know what to do. Now, I'm being a bit flippant, I guess. But it's true, you have the word of the Lord right there. You can turn to that. If you will let it read you, you'll you'll find what you need to do. I believe the first step is this. You need to acknowledge... Our position. I've said that humility and obedience is part of the journey to wholeness. The first step is going, actually, I'm broken. I've got some things that are not right. There is dysfunction in my life that I have settled for. Dysfunction internally, dysfunction in my relationships, dysfunction in my workplace, dysfunction in my family. We're all broken people. Me. I'm a broken person. I've got the junk. So when I say acknowledge a situation, what I I really want, what I'm hoping that you hear me say, is we're all broken. Some of it I'm aware of. Some of it I'm not. And the first step is to go, God, I am broken and I need you. Show me those places. And what... I hope you do not do is then sit there and beat yourself up about those things. That does you no good. That's called condemnation. And it's certainly not what God does. He just... It's <laughs> God's desire is that He would be able to heal you and bring wholeness into your life. But if you won't acknowledge that you need it, you won't ask for it. I don't know if you've seen, there was a viral video, it's called Not the Nail. It's a woman and a man talking and the woman's got a big nail in her head. Remember, anybody remember seeing this? And she's like, I've got this really big headache. And he's like, do you think it might be, shush, it's just been going on for ages. Do you think it might be? And then, then she's like, no, oh, it's not the nail. That's like what we're like. There's dysfunction. We go, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that. Then you go, maybe it is. Acknowledge where you're at. Maybe it is. Maybe I need help with this. Second thing is, just like Naaman, we need to choose humility. And that can be so offensive to our hearts. Why do I have to be the one that goes low? Why do I have to be the one who makes myself vulnerable? Why do I have to choose humility? When you're talking about restoring relationships, that can be offensive to your heart. 
or even when God asks you to do something and humbly say, I need help. You go, oh, that feels like I need help. That's like three of the hardest words in the English language right there. You ever done that thing where you're carrying like 101 things and someone's like, do you need a hand? No, good. Maybe that's a man thing. I don't know. All the shopping bags. But so often, I, and I mean this very sincerely, I've conditioned myself to just say, no, I'm good. And then I go, actually, sorry, no, I do need help. I, and I'm aware of that. It's a thing in me. I'm aware that when people offer to help me, I'm often like, no, I think I'm okay. I could be just about to collapse. Like, I think I'm okay. I'll get there. But I'm having to train myself to be like, nope, actually, yes, please take that, take that, take that. Thank you. I'll take one bag and you guys can sort them all out. Some problems are bigger than we can handle for ourselves. Particularly if we're talking about generational patterns and things in our blind spots. where We need others to help us see them. And then we need to choose obedience. Obedience can be hard. Obedience can be painful. Or it can be really simple. If you know that your technology use is interfering with your relationships and causing dysfunction there, what's stopping you deleting the app? What's stopping you from putting some limits on your, on your screen time or whatever? That's a simple thing. If it's in relationships, what's stopping you from seeking restoration? Now, look, I, I, I don't pretend to know your circumstances, your situation, so I'm not saying, uh, I'm not giving a, a blanket, like, go to an abuser and, and get that fixed. I'm not making that comment, but I'm just saying, as much as it depends on you, what's stopping you from seeking restoration? In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about, if your hand or your eye causes you to sin, to cut it off. It's not an endorsement for self-mutilation. It's a recognition that your right hand and your right eye are important. But if it's causing you to sin, get it out. If it's causing dysfunction in your life, remove it. Jesus is committed. It is better for you to get into heaven one less eye, one less hand than to burn in hell. The point is that God is committed to you being free from dysfunction you know, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free to walk that out. I want to draw your attention to this. There's a lot of words on there, I know. This is cut directly from New Life News. So if you get New Life News, you've got this. The discipleship, healing and deliverance sessions that are coming up. If God has been speaking to you, or, or if God has been speaking to you this morning about things that you know, dysfunction that you're settled for, you're in that chasm of complacency. You're like, whoa. Uh, my challenge to you now is to make these a priority for your month of May. All right? There's a Wednesday morning for women or a Thursday night on the 4th of May. Same again the next, or in two weeks after that. And then there's the weekend sessions. Discipleship, healing, and deliverance. It's going, I need to get rid of this dysfunction. I'm going to choose humility and go, I need help with this. And I'm going to be obedient because as a community, we're going after this this year. 
It was announced back in January that we were going to do this, that God's been speaking to our lead pastors about this. And I would hate for you to miss out like Naaman almost did. Because making a commitment to four sessions in the month of May was somehow offensive to you. Or recognizing that you might need that was offensive to you. I would hate for that. I would hate for you to miss out on that. So will you embrace the gift of desperation? Acknowledge your situation, choose humility and choose obedience and turn to God. To close this morning, I don't know if this has been like a fire hydrant for you. It's, just, it's funny, but it's too much. Um, or whether the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you this morning. And as I've said things about dysfunction, you're going, ooh, actually, yeah. I want to invite you to make a response this morning. I want to invite people to come up to the front. And we're going to have the, the ELT and, and, and prayer team to, to pray for you this morning. But there's two, two ways I want to do this. If you've been feeling the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart this morning and you want someone to pray with you, that's number one. You're just like, I need, I need someone to pray with me. Second one is if the Holy Spirit, it's a little bit more specific, if the Holy Spirit has been highlighting an area of dysfunction in your life and you know you're in that comfortable, you're in that chasm of comfortable complacency, it's bad, but it's not bad enough. Except in the eyes of God, it is. And you need to recognize, and you recognize that you need that desperation. You need that humility. But you're like, I'm not there. I'm still, the chasm feels comfortable. I know God's speaking to me, but the chasm feels comfortable. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. You know what you can do this morning? I do this all the time. You can go, God. I know what you're saying. And I'm fighting with that. I'm wrestling with that. But I want to want what you want for me. Right now, I'm not sure that I do. I'm not sure that I want what you want for me. But I want to want what you want for me. I want to pray for you. Like I said, the prayer I want to want, that's something that I pray a lot for myself. Because I recognize that I've got issues. I've got challenges. I've got times where I'm like, I know what truth is here, but I'm just not feeling it. I want to want what you want for me. Your name is power. Your name is healing name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like a fire. Make this our prayer this morning.